there was a lot of concern that the units in the field might be subject to some kind of terrorist attack. And the response that my unit undertook, our soldiers were issued live ammunition. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place for first-hand Cold War history accounts. And make sure you hit that follow button in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. Dan worked in the War Plans Office of the US Army 7th Corps, working on counter-attack plans and the reorganisation of the US Army's General Defence Plan. He describes a debriefing of a Polish Special Forces operator who had defected to the West and who revealed surprising knowledge of US plans and order of battle. Dan also details his experience on Abel Archer 83 and his views on how dangerous that situation was. In addition to his work in the War Plans Office, we discussed terror attacks on the US Army in West Germany, including the bombing of the Labelle Disco in West Berlin, where two US soldiers and one Turkish woman were killed. The terrorist threat to US forces was significant, and this is highlighted by the attempted assassination of General Crozen, commander of the United States Army in Europe, by the Red Army faction, aka the Bader-Meinhof Group. Dan describes his own experiences in the immediate aftermath of the attack, including the issuing of live ammunition to US forces in the field. I'm delighted to welcome Dan to our Cold War conversation. When I was a captain on the 7th Corps staff, I worked in the plans division, specifically in war plans. I think every year we participated in Reforger and we participated in Able Archer. And typically Reforger, Return of Forces Germany, there were two exercises that were conducted or two timeframes for the exercise. One was in the fall. So you'd have a fall Reforger, which would be about the time that the Germans were harvesting their crops. And there were winter reforgers, which were typically in January. For just in terms of maneuver conditions, the ground was frozen and it was it was pretty good for maneuver. The Able Archer exercise, it came in November. So reforger would be late September, early October. There would be the conduct of the exercise. There would be the return of forces would go back through the Pompkis sites. The Pompkis sites were equipment sites in the very westernmost part of Germany. They were warehouses that had um, had equipment configured in unit sets, which is part of the Pompkis acronym. And the units coming into Reforger would be received at the airport of embarkation. They would move as a unit to those Plumpkus warehouses. They would draw their equipment and then they would move forward to their positions in the, in the general defense plan. And, th- and then they'd participate in the exercise. And then at the end of the exercise, they would move back to the Plumpkus site. They would clean and return equipment, which would go back into storage. And typically the unit then had unit leave for maybe five days or so, and then they would return to the United States from Germany. So at the end of that period, the units have returned their equipment. They're back in the United States. Then in early November, an exercise called Able Archer 
was conducted, and that was a command post exercise, meaning there were not troops in the field. It was conducted from CPs or command posts. It culminated just prior to the release of nuclear weapons. So the general intent was to defeat Soviet forces without using nuclear weapons. And should that prove impractical, then the Able Archer exercise was to allow commanders the experience in what they would need to do to employ the use of tactical weapons in the event that the conventional defenses uh, were not sufficient. I know there's been discussion. I've heard it on several different forums about Able Archer 83 as being considered um, uh, an event that nearly started a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union. And I personally find that really difficult to believe. Um, if you look at through Forger exercise, the United States is bringing over to participate in the, in the exercise at least one division Sometimes I, sometimes I believe two divisions. So they're bringing over additional forces. They're equipping them. They're putting them in the field. Uh, the maximum number of U.S. forces present is significantly enhanced. In the U.S. forces during the Cold War in the early 80s, there were a huge number of, of soldiers and airmen stationed in Germany, well in excess of a quarter of a million. So two, bringing over two operational divisions adds a lot of firepower, plus the support units brought over and the aircraft support, et cetera. So at the end of Reforger, those units all leave. And then there's a, a pause and then Able Archer starts. So had the U.S. really had an intent, as some people say the Soviets supposed, had they had the intent, it really doesn't make sense to to undertake an offensive action without those additional forces that had been there just weeks before. It's, it's pretty nonsensical, actually. And the Soviets had um, a very good understanding of our order of battle, which means what forces we had available, where they were deployed, the times they were deployed. And they were tracking, obviously, through Smellum and other other means, they were tracking the movement of our forces. Smellum was an acronym, Soviet Military Liaison Mission. Much like the Allied Military Liaison Missions in East Germany, such as Bricksmiths, Smellum had access to West Germany and could monitor exercises there. Um, they may even have sent observers um, through the Smellum mission to, to some of the, the maneuvers that we were engaged in. The Soviets knew what we were doing, and we did Reforger on an annual basis. And I think Reforger had been going on since the early 70s. And I think um, Able Archer probably had a pretty long history, too. And they were regularly scheduled events, and they were things that the Soviets were monitoring. Um, I just find it unbelievable that having returned forces to the United States from Germany, having put equipment back in the warehouses from returning basic loads of ammunition, et cetera, back in the storage. And then there's a pause and then the able archer exercise 
which is conducted every year and runs a very similar scenario every year. I just find it hard to believe that in 1983, the Soviets took that as a, a serious risk. Now, it could be that Soviet intelligence, for whatever reason, wanted to portray it as a risk for some political gain or for some inter-military gain within the Soviet system. But I think realistically, they had to know that the Able Archer exercise was just that, one of a very frequently recurring exercise and only an exercise. During this period after um, Brezhnev dies and Andropov is in power, they have got this, uh, the Soviets have got this intelligence operation going called RIAN, which was to look for indicators that the US was going to carry out a first strike, a first nuclear strike on the Soviet Union. And there does appear to be a, a quite a significant degree of paranoia within the Soviet leadership at this point. I mean, I've done a couple of episodes on Abel Archer and and looked into it, and it, it does appear there was some NSA documents which indicate that the Soviet air forces were certainly at a higher degree of readiness during Abel Archer, particularly in East Germany. I'm I'm always interested to hear other people's point of view, and obviously people that were closer to it than 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 I was. Yes, and I think with any exercise, there was the Soviets had a higher degree of readiness going on. I just look at it, you know, from a a tactical and an operational point of view. Were the United States going to exercise an offensive operation, which we never had any plans to do that? But were that going to happen, it would make sense to do it at a point in time where you had maximized the forces that you had at your disposal on the ground and not at a point in time when you had just returned divisions back to the United States. Um, and also given the, the predictability and the regularity of our exercises, and to some degree, not necessarily intentionally, but to some degree, the transparency with which our exercises were conducted. It's hard for me to imagine unless somebody in Soviet intelligence is cooking the books for their own specific outcome or their own specific point of view that they want to uh, promote that Able Archer represented a threat. And we similarly, on the U.S. side, we had different scenarios that we looked at for Soviet responses. So we had a no-notice scenario which said that the Soviets would attack with little or no notice. And that scenario um, really required a defense of, the, of, of German territory pretty far forward. And that was a scenario that was supported for military and political reasons. I think that scenario was supported um, in some measure by the, by the German military and the German government. Yeah. Because it required, um, the ability to respond immediately, which required more units and more defensive positions, et cetera. There were other scenarios that we looked at where U.S. forces would respond through a staged set of readiness phases. So I believe there are in, in air defense parlance, 
there was state amber, state orange, and state scarlet. That state scarlet meant that you were you were at war, and you would be able to come to battle stations and you're be able to conduct fires as necessary. So, um, similar to what we were talking about, Soviet perceptions of able archer. On our side, we had scenarios and perceptions of what the Soviet response might have been. West Germany at the time uh, was very well prepared for any kind of Soviet incursion. There were along autobahns and bridges, there were uh, points that had been established so that they could be explosive charges could be inserted and those could be detonated. Um, there were stretches of the Autobahn that were designated as airfields. So in the event of a war, the, the Autobahn would be closed down. The marker signs would be moved from the sides of the, of the road. And you would have just this long stretch of Autobahn that could support like a 10,000 foot landing strip, which would be capable for many of the transport aircraft we had at that time. The detail of defenses was uh, very well thought out, very integrated, uh, very impressive. If the Soviets had attacked um, conventionally, what was the, the view in terms of whether they could be held or whether tactical nukes were almost a certainty if they did come over the border? That's a great question. Um, when I was in my basic course in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and once I knew I was going to Germany, I was talking to an officer in the course, and this was in 1980. And he told me that, you know, when you get to your unit, you'll regularly go out to the field, you'll go to the, your GDP positions, and you will practice to dip. And I asked, what is dip? Because the Army has many acronyms. And he said, dip means die in place. So in the early days when I was, was there, I think there was a perception that we would be potentially overwhelmed conventionally. And certainly the Soviets had superiority in just about every category. If you looked armored, uh, vehicles, infantry units, aircraft, etc. But there was a real change in that perception, probably in the around 1983-84, certainly by 85 and definitely by 86. Airland battle doctrine had been developed and ruled out. And by the time that I was at 7th Corps headquarters working in the, the plans office, I think there was a real strong conviction that had the Soviet Union invaded, that we could have, that we could have held them off with conventional forces. And I think that the, the deployment of nuclear forces would only have been in response to first Soviet employment of nuclear weapons. So I, I think the thought was that we could su successfully hold off the Soviet Union for 10 plus days. And that was the amount of time that was generally thought needed to bring in forces from the United States. So we could hold off the Soviets for 10 plus days and perhaps longer until we brought in uh, 
forces from the United States and that the use of tactical nuclear weapons would only be in response to a, a first Soviet use. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. What was the reasoning behind that improved belief that the Soviets could be held? Was it the fact that there were improved weapon systems out there that were making up for that numerical disadvantage that NATO had? Yes, it was a combination of things. It was the certainly the introduction of the Abrams M1A1 tank, which I think uh, was introduced in numbers maybe in or. Um, there were other improved weapon systems as well, artillery systems, but there was also, an, I think, a shift in doctrine and an understanding of how to employ weapons in a combined arms operation at the operational level, which I think had been somewhat missing before. So, you know, when I came in the Army, it was the I started ROTC in the mid-70s, and uh, my first unit in 1980, it was still really a post-war, post-Vietnam War army, and it had a lot of problems, it had a lot of discipline issues, it had a lot of, um, a lot of units, my, my units were always under strength, for example, so there were problems in, in the quality of soldiers that we attracted, there were problems in in meeting numbers etc and some of the uh, mid-level nco leadership was not as good as it is now not as good as it's been for the last 20 years um some of the mid-level nco leadership had been um products of the vietnam war called shake and bake ncos which literally meant that the NCO, rather than developing career-wise to the rank that he was at, would go through a training program, a compressed training program. He might come into the program as a private first class or a specialist four and come out as a, a sergeant. And those NCOs who had developed that way were still in the force. And especially in the technical branches like Signal Corps, Air defense artillery were not were not strong NCOs were not strong leaders, so there were a number of factors that came into um, the change, and I think our ability to to uh, pose a more credible defensive force toward a Soviet incursion. I interviewed an East German tank commander, and he talks about 
a change in doctrine within the East German army in 85, 86, around about the time that Gorbachev comes into power. And the main change is that they would not cross the border into West Germany. If NATO attacked East Germany or tried to invade East Germany, then they would obviously fight. But the, the change in doctrine was that it would, they wouldn't be crossing the, uh, the border. You know, whether or not they would have done, who, who, who knows? But I, th- I think, you know, there, there was obviously with Gorbachev coming to, into power, he was not as hawkish by any means as some of the previous Soviet leaders. And so therefore he's, he's got other problems to solve in, in so much the uh, Soviet economy. So, uh, you know, he's less interested in, uh, you know, trying to convert West Germany and Western Europe to uh, the Soviet way, I guess. Well, that, that is very interesting. I had not heard that. Um, we certainly took the possibility of Soviet Warsaw Pact incursion very seriously. And given the absolute superiority that they had in most categories of weapons, I think it would have been really uh, foolhardy not to have taken it seriously and not to have been prepared to plan against the potential incursion against a large-scale invasion because that's certainly how things looked absolutely i mean i learn something every time when i'm when i'm doing these um interviews and it's just interesting hearing you know from the other side and 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 people with different viewpoints into um uh, some some of these things. Um, you you mentioned various different scenarios you you prepared for. Now you know the the obvious ones is all the shock armies and the East Germans come over the border. What were the more different scenarios? Like for example, did you have a scenario um, in if an accidental release of a tactical nuke from Warsaw Pact came over or, or something like that? Were there more? sort of nuanced scenarios you also had in that pack? Um, I don't recall any scenarios about accidental releases of, of weapons or acts short of a full-scale war. I do know we had a number of scenarios, especially when I was at 7th Corps. We had a number of contingency operation plans uh, for what we would do after the conduct of the war. So mostly those were counterattacks. When I was at seventh Corps, just prior to my arriving there, we'd had a general officer, Lieutenant General Livesey, uh, who was actually quite a, a visionary officer. And he required, uh, required his officers to do a lot of professional development and reading and research. And from his time there, there were a lot of materials and books still left. And what we had studied and what I had studied as well was German operations in Russia in the 1940s when they were having defensive operations against the Soviets. And I think it was von Manstein, I believe, had a book called um, Lost Battles, if I'm not mistaken. But basically, he talked about uh, prolonged operations against the Soviets, prolonged defensive operations, and how they were successful. And 
to some degree, we kind of modeled that in some of our contingency operation plans. So if you meet an opposing force head on and you're defending at every inch and opposing force has a really strong superiority in categories of weapons, that's not a, that's not a recipe for success. If you allow penetrations to develop to a depth that you're able to attack the enemy's flank and you're able to attack in the enemy's rear, uh, such as such as the Germans did in their defensive operations against the Soviet Union in the ni- 1940s, you're much more likely to be able to conduct successful operations. So our our uh, contingency operation plans envisioned deeper Soviet penetrations into Western Germany, into our into our core sector that would allow us to attack the Soviet flanks and uh, encircle Soviet units and disrupt their operations. So was part of the tactic to give ground so that the Soviets would start to expose their flanks and be vulnerable to counterattack? Yes. So a delayed defense with the ability to, to surrender terrain temporarily to allow the Soviets to expose their flanks and to be able to counterattack. That was, those were plans that you wouldn't necessarily want to headline with if you were trying to, to sell the defense of Germany to, you know, German politicians or the Ministry of Defense. The argument you'd make there is you're going to defend from the inner German border, absolutely. But the reality of of planning was the uh, ability to do things like that. What were the the sort of plans around Soviet airborne forces and and Spetsnaz? We were briefed uh, very very thoroughly on the possibility of Spetsnaz and uh, Soviet airborne forces. And it, it, when I was in the air defense units, we were further from the forward edge of the battle area than the frontline troops. So uh, we were particularly concerned. Uh, we would have been a, a primary target for uh, some sort of airborne operation or a Spetsnaz, uh, Spetsnaz unit coming in. And what we learned, and partly we learned through the, through the uh, various sources like the, the Polish uh, Special Forces defector, was that the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact forces had a very detailed understanding of our order of battle down to, I would say, down to battalion level. They had a very thoroughly detailed understanding of how our forces were arrayed and who was who, who specifically was in command positions. And really, all you had to do, if you were collecting intelligence on the United States, to get that kind of information was get a hold of the U.S. Army Europe phone book. And a lot of the order of battle was laid out there, units and unit commanders, et cetera. But um, from various sources at the time and, and since, I have learned that um, this, the Soviet forces, Warsaw Pact, had a very good understanding of, of who we were, how we were arrayed, who was responsible for certain units. 
and what our what our uh, general defense plan positions mostly were. Yeah, well, they did have uh, well both the East Germans and the well mainly the East Germans had a number of agents at quite sensitive levels within NATO who were providing um, that information. Yes, and it was, you know, I, I think it was pretty easy to get, really. Well, it's, as you say, the phone book's a good place to start. <laughs> yes. Um, now, th- this, you mentioned a uh, Polish Special Forces operator. So can you just tell me a bit more about, about him? What I recall was when I was at Headquarters 7th Corps, and it was probably pretty early into my time there, so 1986. So our, I, I was in the operations directorate, which had plans, and we worked very closely with the intelligence directorate, which was the G2, and they would normally have, um, they would help us develop what the enemy order of battle looked like and what our threats looked like, specifically what units were facing us in our sector. And they would uh, typically have sessions with us. And in one session, they brought in a Polish special forces defector. I believe he'd been a corporal, if I'm not mistaken. And he talked and shared some of his, he shared his training and he shared his um, experiences. And he talked at length about the the detail that um that his his unit in the warsaw pact forces the detail that they had about concerning our order of battle and um it was really alarming it was really you know came as as quite a surprise they knew as much about us it had an inclination of our plans as as they did um, but he was, you know, he was kind of low level. So he, he, he had some really good information and some good anecdotes, but he didn't have kind of a higher level operational or strategic perspective. Because I mean, you, the general defense plan had been passed to, uh, the Soviets through these, uh, Stasi agents. So I would imagine alarm bells rang when they heard from this uh, Polish special forces guy as to what level of detail the Soviets had. Yes, and I don't know if it's connected or or not, but about that time, we in 7th Corps changed our general defense plan. So we were arrayed in in an area from, uh, to our northern flank was the U.S. 5th Corps, to our southern flank was the 2nd German Corps, and then Within our sector, we were arrayed from the Meiningen Gap, which is near Würzburg, to the, um, down through the Czech border to, um, through the Frankischer Wald, that region. It was a very large sector. And our force arraignment was the 12th Panzer Division, which was a German division, and it had the defense of the Meiningen Gap. The third infantry division, first armored division, the second armored cavalry regiment, and in reserve we had the first infantry division forward, which was organized as a separate uh, independent brigade. 
And those were the forces that we had arrayed within our, in our defense sector. And we'd had a pretty straightforward, most of the forces forward GDP prior to 86, 87. And in that time, we had a new general defense plan that was um, put together, which allowed us in the very heavily wooded sector of the Frankishire Vault and the, uh, the Bayeshire Vault. And um, I forget the name of the other area, but it was kind of in the area between West Germany and Czechoslovakia. It allowed us to have a much lighter force there, the second ACR, doing a screening operation in, a, in an economy of force role. And it allowed us to keep more forces in reserve to be able to uh, counterattack against the Soviet incursion. So specifically, we had the 1st Infantry Division and um, we had parts, I think we had parts of another division that we were holding in reserve and could deploy as the, as the battle developed. So during this period, certainly the uh, the mid eighties, there was the the bombing of the Labelle Disco in Berlin. Uh, did that have any impact on you? Yes. So uh, the Labelle Disco was bombed, and I should say at the time that I was at Seventh Corps headquarters, uh, the officers and the soldiers who were supporting Seventh Corps were in a unit called the Special Troops Battalion. And the Special Troops Battalion commander was a man named Robert L. Howard. Robert L. Howard was a Medal of Honor holder from the Vietnam War. He'd been in MACV in SOG, had quite a famous and heroic career, extremely uh, decorated hero of, of Vietnam. He was our battalion commander. He was lieutenant colonel. And after the, the bombing of La Belle Disco, at some point, they brought as many of the soldiers serving in, in Seventh Corps together for a briefing in the theater on coast. And it, there must have been two to 300 soldiers and airmen in the theater and who were being given a briefing by uh, some intelligence personnel onto what possible threats we could expect as a result. Uh, certainly throughout that time, there had been factions like the Red Army faction, for example. There had been groups that had been kind of on a low level targeting American forces and trying to create mayhem and doing things that was e that were even larger in operation, which we can talk about as well, like the attempted assassination of General Crows. And so there were there were units and players in Germany that had historically been targeting US forces. It was concerned that as a result, our response to the attack on the Labelle Disco in Berlin, that we were going to come under increasing threat from different interlocutors and agents and units, etc. So we were being given this briefing and they were laying out, you know, really what to, what to look for, what to be aware of, 
all the different indicators and all the different possible uh, scenarios that, that might happen. And they had opened it up for questions. And uh, there was an airman in the audience who said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, why did we have to, why did we have to respond? Why did we have to attack them? We're putting ourselves in danger. Why couldn't we have just left things alone? And from the back of the room, this booming voice calls out, bullshit. And it was, it was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Howard. And he comes striding down the center of the aisle and he says, I think this is a pretty goddamned good day to be an American and I'm proud of it. And then he proceeded for the next five or 10 minutes just to give an off the cuff uh, pep speech to us, which really rallied everybody and changed the situation. And really it was, it was the right delivery at the right time in coming from someone who was, you know, who had his past and was a, a real established hero. It was just the thing I think that assembled group needed to hear. And it kind of, you could feel in the audience, a shift of, of turning the, the morale of the group and the outlook from one of dread and apprehension to, yeah, we're good with this. We're going to, we're going to do what we need to do. We've got this mission. And at that time, did they say that it was Libya that was involved at that point, or were they still a bit vague as to who they thought had uh, caused the attack? As I recall, they, they had said that it was Libya and they, they were pretty clear about that. And as you mentioned, that there was a lot of activity at the time with the Bader-Meinhof group who were actually bombing uh, some U.S. bases as well. But you also mentioned an attempted assassination on a U.S. general. Can you uh, talk about that? That was General Crozen. General Crozen at the time was the U.S. Army Europe commander uh, based out of Heidelberg. And at the time of the assassination attempt, he had, separate from the installation, he had a, a villa of sorts that was up on one of the hills overlooking Heidelberg, and he would typically drive down. So this was, I believe, on the 15th of September, 1981. And I recall it because my unit, the Air Defense Artillery Battalion that I was in at the time, was in the field. We were in a local training area called Kuhlsheim. And what had happened was General Crozen was moving from his villa in a lightly armored uh, staff car from his villa with his wife. And he was going down to the headquarters, which was uh, actually in the proper city of Heidelberg at Campbell Barracks. And I believe, if I remember correctly, he was stopped at an intersection or slowed down at an intersection and an attack was made with an RPG, a shoulder-fired rocket grenade. And the round went and hit, it hit on the metal beam that ran between the back window and uh, a forward window. So where it hit, it caused damage. Um, I think it would have been much more serious had it hit the actual window, but it caused significant damage. General Crozen was wounded in that attack lightly, and his wife may have been uh, lightly injured too, I'm not sure. But of course, that created quite an uproar. Um, my unit in the field 
we were notified sometime about the attack in the late afternoon. And I think the attack had happened earlier in the day. And there was really a lot of confusion. There was a lot of concern that the units in the field might be subject to some kind of terrorist attack as well. And the response that my unit undertook, and I'm not sure if this was an instruction to all units deployed in the field or not, but um, our soldiers were issued live ammunition. And in the evenings in our field location, we had roving patrols who were going around with live ammunition. And really, that was kind of a scary thing, not because of the attack, but because you have young soldiers with minimal training on responding to a terrorist attack, minimal training on in an incursion, who are walking around with live ammunition and they're on edge. And, you know, your soldiers... Uh, your leadership, et cetera, me, I'm walking around checking on my soldiers, checking on units, et cetera. And you, you didn't want to be misidentified. And everybody at, at that point was, as I said, was, was on edge. Fortunately, there were no accidents as a result of that. But the Red Army faction and the Batter Meinhof gang uh, and other groups had a long record of, of attacks and incidents involving U.S. soldiers. So we would typically, in, in this period of time, there was no automated pay. So soldiers were paid by a payroll, and you would have a pay officer who would pick up U.S. dollars and German Deutschmark, and you would pay your soldiers their wages on a bi-weekly basis, if I remember correctly. You know, the soldiers would come in and report for pay and you take their earning statement and you count out their money and you give it to them. Then they could elect to have it either in dollars or Deutschmark or a combination of both. So the payroll that you would take out, if I remember correctly, I would take out probably when I was pay officer, probably $50,000 and maybe 50,000 Deutschmark. It was a pretty sizable payroll. And as pay officer, you were armed and you had a guard who was also armed that accompanied you. And um, I, t I personally took it very seriously. So I loaded and charged my pistol. I had a 45 caliber pistol. And when I came back from, from paying the soldiers, the, the battery commander was really surprised to see that I had a round in the chamber. He was al almost alarmed, but we had been told that pay officers uh, with payrolls, so you'd pick up your payroll at a central location and you might go 12 miles across town to where your unit was. And we had been told that those pay officers were occasionally targets for the Batermannhof gang who would try to knock the pay the pay officer off or you know somehow get the get the payroll and use that money to finance the acquisition of weapons and explosives and other things so we were very cautious about that also um i think around 1983 there was an officer who had formerly been in my battalion he'd been the alpha battery commander he was up at our divisional level headquarters, which was the 32nd Army Air Defense Command in Darmstadt, Germany. 
he went out to his car, which was parked on post, but I believe the post had pretty open access. He got in his car, he opened the door and he sat down and someone had put a pressure detonated bomb underneath the seat of his car. It exploded, tore out his uh, eardrum and uh, injured him in the, in the buttocks where he had been seating a pretty, pretty significant injury actually. Having the car door open at the time enabled the blast to diffuse rather than be contained and it probably saved his life. So events like that were not unheard of. And if you were being cautious and you had a parked vehicle, you would typically check it for any kind of possible explosives that might have been put underneath it. Also, some of the sites that I worked on when I was with the air defense units, they were isolated sites. There were cases, and I'm not sure that this is attributable to the Red Army faction, but there were cases of people driving up to the site and firing off rounds into the site. So I recall one unit had somebody had driven up and fired a shotgun into the inside of the site and not done any damage, but you know, it was something you'd always be cautious of. I when I was in the, in, in my signal platoon, I was visiting our Bravo battery, which was in kits again. I was on site. And, uh, while I was on site, somebody fired a couple of high round shots from the outside into the site. Again, did no damage, but it was certainly something that would get your attention. And I also know, um, in 1985, there was increased concern about attacks at our isolated sites. So one thing that we did, the ready site for my battery, we would park a deuce and a half, a two and a half ton truck right inside the closed gate so that if somebody came up and tried to ram the gate, they couldn't get through. It would be blocked by the vehicle. So there was certainly... a large degree of uh, concern about these groups and what they could do. And there was, you know, by the same token, we, we understood the threat and we tried to prepare for it as much as we could. Yeah. Cause I think during that period, I think 83, there was the bombing of the Marine barracks in the Lebanon, which was a vehicle bomb. Well, well in the mid eighties, there was a bombing. Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was at Ramstein air force base. Someone had from Red Army faction had lured a young soldier out. I think it was kind of a honey trap. Lured this young soldier out, killed him, taken his ID card, and then had a vehicle-borne uh, explosive device that they blew up somewhere on Ramstein Air Base, which did some pretty significant damage. And if I'm not mistaken, even earlier in the 80s, there had other been other bombings like that. I know that there was a bombing at one point in time at um, at Campbell Barracks in Heidelberg, maybe in the late 70s, that also, um, I think, resulted in the deaths of a couple service members and some significant damage. I think people forget some of the the dangers that uh, NATO forces had in Germany during that period, because the British were also having to deal with IRA attacks on their forces 
in in Germany as as well. I think the what's obvious is there was a, a sort of a greater degree of sophistication of these attacks as as the eighties went on with Bader Meinhof because I think they had a go at General Haig as well with an RPG. Well, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. I certainly wouldn't put past them. They had a very, very long reach and they had, a. I, I think that there were a lot of, um, there were active RAF members and I think they also had a lot of sympathizers and I think they had a lot of people who were feeding them information as well. Certainly had the feeling, the knowledge that our site, any of the, any of the locations I was at and even the seventh Corps headquarters in Kelly barracks were were often under surveillance by unfriendly people. Were you taken to the inner German border during your time in Germany just to actually see what that was like? We would get close to it on reforger maneuvers. Um, I conducted, we had a tour when I was at seventh Corps headquarters, we had a tour from uh, an air marshal and we hosted it and basically that involved us spending hours in rehearsal and then in the actual actual um, execution of the visit flying along the inner german border so basically what we were doing was showing him inner german border and where our defensive positions were and how we intended to conduct in, uh, a defense in depth so i had a pretty good aerial exposure to the inner german border we had just a kind of a funny story we had in the first battalion that i was in which was 652 we had a during our forger we had a lieutenant who accidentally took an assault fire platoon a hawk assault fire platoon into the 1k zone with uh, czechoslovakia so the border had a 1k zone on the German side of it that no U.S. forces other than the cavalry and um, military police were allowed to enter. And this uh, young lieutenant who did not have very good map reading skills was honorary forger driving to a position and he was actually driving through the 1K border headed for the, the physical border of Czechoslovakia and he was stopped by the cavalry and turned around. And any incursion into the 1K zone was considered um, an incident that, uh, that would generate a serious a serious incident report that would go up through channels. So that his his name his nickname after that was Ed Wrongway because he had taken the wrong way into the the, the German border. And then in nineteen eighty seven, I believe. I did have a chance when I was at the 7th Corps staff to go up and go up to the 1K zone on foot and be able to survey the border at various points, which um, helped inform me in my job as a planner and you know gave me a feeling for the terrain and the uh, defensive positions that we might be looking at. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen. And I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. 
Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. Presumably you, you got some view of the, uh, some of the Czech border guards as well. I did. We saw their, their outposts. And um, from what I understand, especially in the area of Czechoslovakia, the border was perhaps more porous than than might have been imagined. And there were places where it, if you weren't watching what you're doing, you could accidentally get too close or even stray across. Did you have much contact with other forces within NATO, like the British or the French? Initially, when I was with air defense units, we had a lot of contact with our German partnership units. And the German Hawk Air Defense was part of the German Air Force. So those were Air Force units. And we would typically do events with them. We had evaluations, which were called tactical evaluations. And the team that conducted those evaluations was from the 4th Allied Tactical Air Force. And there would be Dutch and German officers participating in those evaluations. Um, And depending on the commander, they weren't necessarily always well received. Um, I can think of one incident where a battalion commander made some rather unfortunate remarks to a German counterpart, citing uh, World War One and World War Two as a track record. That did not go over well. It was very undiplomatic. The more uh, yeah, close, I can imagine that. Yeah, the more close relationship I had. When I was at 7th Corps, I was also the uh, liaison officer to the 1st French Army and the 2nd French Corps. And we would conduct uh, exercises with them on a regular basis. And at that time, France had forces stationed near Baden-Baden in the western part of Germany, not far from the French border. And one exercise I participated with them, it was... um, maybe about five days in duration. It was a command post exercise. It was very interesting. We went to into France, and there was a part of the Maginot Line, which uh, was still kept active. It was uh, had been reinforced and modernized, and it was able to withstand, I believe, anything up to a direct nuclear weapon being detonated on it. But it used the old French Maginot Line, so we went down into it through um the tunnels that they had and they had uh they had you know train tracks running down but the trains no longer ran but the headquarters was in this old french uh magical line position that had been modernized and we did a command post exercise there and parts of it had not been modernized for example the rooms that were billeted in had bunks that I think stacked four high. There were windowless rooms, obviously they were underground. 
They had straw mattresses. The mess facilities probably pretty much as they'd been during World War II. But it was a, a very interesting exercise. The command post area was modernized. They had modern communications and maps and tracking boards, etc. But the plan was uh, that the first French army and the second French corps would reinforce NATO forces. And I think that the second French corps had a contingency or support mission regarding the seventh corps, which was my unit. And there were a number of areas where we tied in with the French as well. Um, then in seventh corps headquarters, we had, I neglected to mention that part of our order of battle was the fourth Canadian mechanized brigade, which was operating out of Lar. Uh, um, I don't think they were an active part of our order of battle, but I think they had an on-order mission to us. They had an element in our headquarters that we interacted with, and we also had liaison officers from the German army who were um, very competent, and they represented both our neighboring unit on our flank, which was the 2nd German Corps, and they represented 12th Panzer Division. And we worked quite closely with them in the preparation of our war plans. And then we, the U.S., would have liaison officers, American liaison officers in the German units as well. And we would regularly interact with those liaison officers. Um, and often they would visit our headquarters during exercises and, and coordinate their positions as well. And with, with the, the Bundeswehr, with I mean, how did they view their military heritage? Did they sort of ignore the World War II period? Um, or, or, you know, how was that? Was that a, a conversation that was just generally avoided? I mean, you did, because you had mentioned earlier that you were reading, you know, like the works of Manstein and looking at how the the Wehrmacht and the, the German army in World War II had fought against the Russians. But I, I'm just interested to know whether that was an avoided conversation when you were, you know, liaising with the West Germans. I would say it was generally avoided. I do recall meeting at one point a retired brigadier general from the German army who was missing several fingers from his left hand. And he casually mentioned to me that he had left those fingers in a suburb of Moscow in 1941. Um, generally, wartime experiences, especially with the Bundeswehr, were not discussed. I wouldn't say, I, I would say that there's been a change because at the time there were concerns and installations that were named after successful German military people from Second World War, pilots like Mulders, for example, etc. Uh, installations bore those names and they drew a lineage to those units and those people. And I know that um, within the last 10 years or maybe 15 years, those installations no longer bear those names and that, that lineage has been struck. But usually they were German soldiers who had distinguished World War II careers and were considered to be apolitical 
or even anti-Nazi. And those individuals were recognized and the lineage and service was recognized. But I think even that has been removed now. Uh, because some of the World War One lineage, I think, is still retained. Because I think there's still the Rich, the Richthofen squadron in uh, the the Luftwaffe um, there, and I seem to think there's a Rommel Kasern somewhere. But again, he he's he's probably was viewed as being anti-Nazi, although he was a little bit late in uh, coming to that view. I think he was absolutely uh, viewed as, as somebody from the era who could be respected and held up. I don't know if, if you knew this or not, but Rommel had a son who was the Lord Mayor of Stuttgart, which was where Seventh Corps was headquartered. And I believe his son, so Rommel's grandson, married a granddaughter of General Patton. Because General Patton's son, who was also a general, two-star general, uh, at one time was in Stuttgart as well. And the younger General Patton and the son of Rommel had formed a friendship, which extended to the families. And eventually, two of the children got married. And the daughter is, uh, I heard her speak in Germany within the last five years when I was still over there. But she... And and I met the, which would have been the great-grandson of both Patton and Rommel. I met him. So there is a continuation and there is a lineage still there. And the daughter is very active or was up until I last knew, active in keeping the uh, Patton name and tradition alive and showing the connection and friendship and familial ties between the two families. Wow. I didn't know that. That's... um. A fascinating uh, nugget there. One thing I did not mention, uh, I, I talked about the assassination attempt on General Crozen, and I talked that we were in the field and we had live ammo. So the day after we finished that exercise, and I think we probably returned, we're going to return early because of the assassination attempt. So this was a morning in September in Germany, and that time of the year, the mornings are often very foggy, and uh, there'll be fog until about 10 or 11, and then it burns off, and the day is clear and brilliant. So we were departing from the field, and the captain that I worked for, who was the officer in charge of our tactical site, um, had said that he was going to conduct, um, he wanted to make sure that we were all aware and sharp and ready. So he was going to set off a canister of, of tear gas, CS, which was just about the stupidest thing a person could do under those circumstances. So you have people moving around on heavy equipment. You're, we're disassembling our rigs and lowering antennas and rolling up cables and moving vehicles around. So people are exposed. You have soldiers with live ammunition. You have a really heavy fog. And this guy sets off a, uh, sets off a CS grenade. And CS, you know, in the foggy condition is just going to kind of hang and penetrate even further. Um, 
and everybody scrambles to, to get their masks on. And nobody was injured, which was remarkable because of all the moving equipment. And at, at the end, it passes. And the executive officer, who was a real firebrand, calls the captain in and says, you know, what the hell were you doing? What were you thinking? What did you possibly hope to accomplish as a result of that? And he very meekly said, training, sir. And the, the battalion executive officer just, it, in those days, one was freer to express displeasure with subordinates. And it was just accepted in the military. And the, the battalion executive officer just tore into him and read him the riot act and told him that that was possibly the stupidest thing that anyone could have done under the circumstances. And it was pretty stupid, quite frankly. And it was amazing that there were no accidents. But, you know, that unit at the time, um, this was 81, was not really in the best position in terms of leadership and not in the best position in terms of, of discipline and, and training. Now, one of my regular questions, where were you when the Berlin Wall opened? Uh, I finished in Germany in 1989, and I went from Headquarters 7th Corps to, to language school to become a foreign area officer. And I was in language school in November of 1989 when the wall came down. And with as much experience as I had and as much insight that I thought I had, I could never have foretold that those events were going to happen when they did. I was really of the mind that there were two monolithic blocks, the West and the Warsaw Pact, and I could not have foretold at all that the, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union was going to crumble as rapidly as it did. I was of the mindset that that was going to be our future for um, an indefinite amount of time going forward. Yeah, you're you're not alone in that by by any means. Uh, it was incredible how quickly the whole the whole certainty that that we had at that point sort of just crumbled away with um, the implosion of East East Germany, all the Warsaw Pact countries, and and then ultimately the um, the the Soviet Union. I mean, at that point, did you think, "Oops, th this might be my job disappearing"? No, I didn't think that. I, I did not realize fully what the implications were going to be. And later, I think, you know, post Gulf War, there certainly was the thought that there was a peace dividend and there certainly was a downsizing in militaries, which I got caught up in as well. But at, at the time, I didn't think of it in those terms. In 1992, when I was doing my in-country training as a foreign area officer in Europe, uh, one of the places that I went to was former East Germany. And we visited Potsdam and we visited a German military concern there, uh, not a German, but a Russian military concern there. And for the Russians, a, an assignment in Germany was considered a really plum assignment. And the facilities were considered to be, you know, far superior to anything they had in the Soviet Union. 
and it was a much sought after uh, position. And the Russian concern or the Soviet concern that I visited had a Cossack, Cossack unit there. And really, it looked like that they had come off the steps of, of, of Russia from the, from the 1940s or something. They just looked like they were straight out of that era. But the interesting thing was in front of the concern, and the concern itself by U.S. standards was in, in poor repair. It was kind of, um, it was really rough around the edges. It was not by any imagination what you would consider a sought-after or garden assignment, which it was for the Soviets. But outside the front of the concern were all these Russian soldiers, and they had poncho liners laid out with their complete kit laying out on the poncho liners, so rank insignia, belts, hats, great coat, etc. And they were trying to sell it all. So they were in front of their concerns, hacking their basic issue of equipment and personal personal gear, trying to to make a buck. And from what I understand, also during the the time of the, of the Soviet presence there during the Cold War, the soldiers were um, the Soviet soldiers, Warsaw Pact soldiers, were often impoverished. They sometimes resulted. Uh, they sometimes turned to stealing from the the local hosting German population, which was not well received. And surprisingly, I think that the Russian soldiers were pretty much kept in their barracks, except for when they would move to training areas. And their training areas were connected with uh, concrete pads that were the width of a tank. So they could move from their barracks to their training area. I don't think that they had a whole lot of interaction with the East Germans. And I don't think that they did a whole lot of maneuvering in the German countryside as we did. And that became evident to me when I talked in later years, when I was working at the headquarters U.S. Army Europe, well after the Cold War, talking to former East German officers and soldiers, and they simply did not have uh, a tradition of maneuvering as the United States had maneuvered during the Cold War. They didn't have the concept of of paying maneuver damages or even having an interaction with the military and the general public. Yeah, I d- I've heard that before, that certainly the um, other ranks of the Soviet army did not leave barracks. They didn't get any downtime. Some of the officers were able to uh, le- leave the barracks, but certainly just the the other ranks were treated really poorly, had very poor facilities. Whilst it was an enviable posting, um, you know, they didn't get to see much of the place unless they were on exercise. Yes, we, we heard that too. And we also heard, and I think the Polish um, deserter mentioned this, that among the lower ranks, there was a lot of Uh, bullying and hazing by the upper enlisted ranks don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information the podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and i'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road 
The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information